You're listening to Remote Possibilities, a podcast on the intersection of technology, society, and education, brought to you by MarketScale. Now here's your host, Kevin Hogan. Okay, hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Remote Possibilities, the podcast that explores the promise and the perils of distance learning. I'm your host, Kevin Hogan, and I'm glad you found us. With me today is Sean Slade, Senior Director of Global Outreach at the organization ASCD. During his nearly three decades in education, which spans five countries and four continents, Sean has spoken with and written extensively on topics related to the whole child and health and well-being, and he has been at the forefront of promoting and using school climate, connectedness, resilience, and a youth development focus for school improvement. He has been a teacher, head of department, educational researcher, senior education officer, and director. He has taught, trained, and directed education initiatives in Australia, Italy, Venezuela, the United Kingdom, and the United States. Sean, welcome to Remote Possibilities, and thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Kevin. Happy to be here. I think maybe the best thing to do would be to start and talk a little bit about ASCD. I've known the organization for years and, and the work that you do and the, the events that you put on, but can you give our listeners a little context? Yeah, certainly. So for those who aren't familiar with um, ASCD, um, and the name is formally, or it used to formally be the Association for Supervision and Curriculum Development, but we tend to go by the acronym um, more often than not. We are a global education association based in the Washington, D.C. area. We've been around for about, I think it's 77 years now, Um, and we have around about 115,000 members, um, mainly in the U.S. and North America, but spread across about 130 countries. And um, what I really like about the organization, I've been here for 10 years now, is ever since 2007, we've been focused around a whole child approach to education, um, making sure that we um, teach and help grow and develop our youth, not just academically, uh, but also socially, emotionally, mentally, physically. You know, in, in short, we're, we're helping to, to grow and develop the whole child. That's great. So, it seems that those issues, while important before, have become just absolutely essential now in the wake of this uh, this madness that we're we're currently going through. You you had a terrific uh, post last month that kind of broke down some of the specifics when it comes to the whole child uh, and some of the elements that I I see in the ed tech space uh, social emotional learning. Uh, how have you and how has the organization pivoted uh, to respond to, to this current crisis? Yeah, and I would say we it's it's been a pivot, but it's also been a reaffirmation of what we know is important in good teaching and learning. So one of the things that, you know, I'm a former teacher and a former um, department head and Um, One thing I know is that when you have good teaching and learning and you're providing good pedagogy, it comes when you know your kids, when you know their 
school, when you know their culture, when you know them as individuals. And so when I talk about, or when we talk at ASCD about uh, a whole child approach, it really falls back into um, good pedagogy. So it's been a pivot at ASCD in how we are providing some of our um, professional development and our leadership. Um, obviously more online now than anything else. We're solely online. Um, but, and it's also been a, a pivot in helping principals and teachers and, and school leaders understand what is or what does make up um, uh, good learning. However, what's been really interesting, at least from my point of view, is that the the current COVID-19 crisis has really emphasized the need for all of us to focus on the health and well-being of our students. And that's not just the obvious physical health and well-being, but their their sense of belonging, their sense of community, their sense of support and safety, um, you know, as they're learning is, is critical. Some... Um, we've been doing a couple of webinars as well with um, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control. Um, and we, what's been really interesting is as we start to um, do those webinars on how you lead schools through this COVID-19 crisis, they've been really focusing on the physical health environment. And we've been able to focus on the social, emotional and learning environment. And if there's one sort of phrase that comes up time and time again, um, in all of those presentations we've done so so far, is that you need to worry about Maslow's hierarchy before you start to worry about Bloom's taxonomy. Mm. Now, not to to say that it's necessarily completely sequential, um, because it's not, um, but the the cliff notes or the short version of it is if the kids are not healthy and if they do not feel safe, then it's really difficult for us to get them to, um, to learn, to collaborate, to problem solve, to be part of the um, standard learning process. So there's been a real emphasis um, from our part on how do you make your classrooms, um, even if they're online, be safe, supportive learning communities. That's good stuff. I uh, was doing my due diligence on your on your website and noticed that um, ASCD was really early on in providing resources and content. Um, and I assume that is because of your international um, your own international community that you've been watching other countries and other education systems uh, tackle this issue before it came to the U.S. Are there any examples that you can recall of uh, other countries embracing some of these methodologies and, and doing a good job with it? Well, I would I would say that there has been a general consensus across the education communities of really establishing um, that learning community. And so everything that we saw coming out from other countries, but also what we saw coming out from our 
um, own educational leaders here in the US was saying, um, make sure before you worry about um, learning continuity, make sure that you start to establish a culture and a climate where the kids know who they can reach out to and the staff know who they can reach out to um, and that you try and develop as much normalcy as possible. Um, you know, the ways that you do developing that normalcy are going to differ um, from school to school or teacher to teacher or classroom to classroom. But some great little examples, there was, um, uh, I, I can't recall his name um, immediately, but there was one teacher we had a report on who went back to his classroom, um, got his um, aquarium um, from his classroom, got a couple of plants from his classroom, brought them back to his home office and basically tried to um, redecorate his home office to look like what the classroom would look like. Huh. And so that when the kids are tuning in um, to the lessons or they're chatting with the teacher um, virtually, um, they're, they're seeing something which feels normal to them. It's this, it's this sense that even though the world's gone a little bit crazy, um, there are still things that we that ground us and make us feel connected. Um, it's, I'm sure you've been doing it as well, but one thing we've been stressing to um, schools, and as far as I can see, the majority of schools are, have been doing it, is um, the more often you can use video, the more often you can, um, the students can see the teacher, even if the students aren't on video, if they can see the teacher mm. on video, it, again, it gives a sense of normalcy. Ah, there is my teacher. Ah, I can under, I, the the actions, the the mannerisms um, are reassuring. You know, it it's uh, even though many of us maybe get a little bit tired of being on Zoom calls or yeah. we don't enjoy the video or get a little bit self conscious about our unruly hair um, after <laughs> eight weeks of not going to the hairdressers or barbers, it. It really does make a difference to the students, um, and it makes a difference to staff as well. One thing um, that I that I'm sure that you in your podcasts um, harp back on as well is that it's it's very easy, I think, for educators to um, put all their focus on the kids, which mm. is natural, um, and I think it's as imperative that the um, school leadership and administration especially um, put their focus equally back onto the teachers and the faculty as well because many of them are going are also going through crises um, and they also need to feel connected and supported as well I think very often we you know teachers very often if they get a pay rise if they get a bonus they end up spending it on the kids. Um, very often they um, they ignore their own um, issues or deprivation, and I think it's it's the right time for somebody else, in, in such as the principal and so forth, to step up and make sure that um, you know the staff are looked after as well. Right. No, I mean it's everyone is suffering um, in this particular scenario, yeah. so we need to to take care of uh, our, ourselves. Let me ask you this. Um, 
have you noticed any differences in the style of teaching and learning uh, when it comes to age groups? It's um, what we've been able to do is, from what we've seen, is that obviously the younger age groups um, require a little bit more attention, a little bit more focus. Um, and so the teachers very often are checking in more often with them mm. um, where, where possible. And it's not always possible nor advisable. Um, that can be direct instruction or direct um, synchronous learning. Whereas as you start to get through middle school and high school, um, you're allowing, you're one, you're requiring, but you're also allowing the kids to start to learn a little bit more on their own. Um, and it's funny, one of, one of the articles I wrote recently as well was, was talking about how this um, crisis um, has the potential to force education um, about a decade into the future. Um, and that some of the things that many of us have been discussing um, or um, planning for, and many teachers are already doing, um, can very easily become commonplace and mainstream. And one of those things is developing learning communities with your students so that the learning isn't just um, one-way um, didactic instruction from the teacher, but the students are learning themselves, they're learning in small groups, they're learning via projects. Um, and it's a development of students as their own agents in learning as well. So it's something that you know many of us have been um, dabbling with and discussing for a number of years now. And I actually think that one of the benefits of this crisis is that it may showcase to many educators that yes, students can learn on their own or in small groups. And it's also providing the platform or arena for students to discover, oh, this is how I can learn and I can learn equally or sometimes better, um, you know, leading myself or leading others as opposed to just being a recipient of the instruction. Right, right. Part part of the the chaos that I've been um, reading and, and and covering has to do with schools, um, you know, trying to figure out if they will able to reopen in the fall, mm. uh, and also discussions about whether or not to uh, kind of shut down over the summer. So they've so these communities that you're talking about have have been created. Um, the old reality was like, here's the last day of school. We'll see you in eight weeks, kids. Um, mm -hmm. Any opinions on whether or not that is something that should change in light of the circumstances? Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I for a number of years have been a big supporter of um, year-round schooling. Um, I think kids and staff do need a break, obviously. Yeah. Um, but the, the rationale behind having a you know eight nine week uh, ten week break over the summer um is sort of lost when you look at the research and you look at the um the need for students to be have a place to congregate and have a place to learn what i i, I do think this is again i don't try and be too pollyanna-ish about this but i do think we can take these events and find positives that come out of them. And I think one of the positives will be that we're starting to look at some of the things that have been 
traditional, whether it's the school calendar, whether it's the start of the school day, whether it's the fact that all kids are at the same school and at the school at the same time, um, uh, whether we, um, you know, the, the value we put on standardized state testing or how we might use that. Um, I think all of these things are now up for discussion and up for debate. And even though we may well come back in the fall to schools that initially might look and feel, you know, um, reasonably similar to what we left, you know, I, of course, there will be um, adjustments made for social distancing and masks and hygiene. But I think many of us will come back to schools and be relieved that it feels somewhat similar. But I can almost guarantee that when a, within a month or two, there will be a whole range of conversations um, that start to spark up about the relevance of what we have been doing and whether or not we need to continue some of these things moving forward. And I think, I think the 2020-2021 school year is going to be a momentous year of change in education. I, I don't, I can't guarantee. I know what the outcome is going to be, but I think, I think some of the things that we've been um, stuck to or wedded to um, for a number of decades um, or generations. Um, we're going to be reassessing and rediscussing, and I think I think that's a valid discussion to have. Yeah, absolutely. Another big um, aspect of all of this that has been put into glaring relief is um, the digital equity issue. Uh, mm. I know for years I've been to events and 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 covered uh, all kinds of issues where they how are we going to solve this problem how are we going to solve this problem in terms of getting a device into every student's hand and access uh, to the internet and it seems these past few weeks um, all of a sudden we're starting to figure that out uh, Comcast uh, has made internet access free for the time being uh, the CEO of Twitter just um, gave tens of millions of dollars to the school district in, in Oakland California to ensure that uh, happens. How does that uh, digital equity aspect uh, fit into your overall work? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's huge. And I think one thing, I think, you, you know, you rightly highlighted it at the very start, which is, you know, we've talked about the cracks in the education system um, around inequities. Um, and I think those cracks have been shown to be chasms um, via this crisis. So, you know, there are there are students who are not able to get access. There are students who are not able to get services. Um, and it's not just the um, technology services and the internet or access to a device. It's even things as simple as getting um, some of the services that are hosted in the school. And, you know, on a very basic level, the, the number of schools that have been providing and are running out of budget for school meals is alarming at the moment as yeah. well. But I, but I do think this, um, this crisis has also really shone a spotlight on how many students um, do not have access to technology and do not have access to devices. And then what you need to do is to understand that 
many of the teachers who may have been um, working with these students who don't have access to technology will probably need um, some fairly significant professional learning themselves on how to um, best utilize technology moving forward. Because I, I do think we're going to start to see a lot more hybrid learning um, going on mm. through this school year. And I do think we're going to see a lot more um, you know, student empowerment of leading their own learning, which will tend to be, or a big proportion of it will be online. The the other thing I'd say, and you know, credit to some of these organisations that are stepping up to provide um, funding and services. There's there's one um, quote I can't remember who quoted it. It's probably been a number of people now, um, but there's one quote that I come back to, which is the the budget is a moral document in a mm -hmm. in a school district or in a um, state department of education. So where you put your funding um, has shows what you deem to be important around which students, which schools, um, which communities, um, and also what's being taught and what's being learnt. And I th this is really showcasing that maybe we haven't done, um, or we definitely haven't done an adequate job of making sure that all students um, have accessibility to technology and all students have accessibility to um, equitable learning systems mm -hmm. as well. And so I, you know, whilst, so sort of harking back to the last con conversation, I think some of these questions around what we deem as essential, what we deem as important in education need to be addressed. And at the same time, what we deem to be important or essential um, from a budgeting point of view um, needs to be reassessed. And I would say one um, one benefit that we have as well in this current time is that this is not an issue which is, of, well, let me just first say, there are sections of the country and the communities that are being hit a hell of a lot harder than others. Yeah, There are some of us, and I fall into this bucket, who are able to still work from home. Um, my students are still able to um, access and learn from home, but there are some students who um, do not have that. And But what this crisis is, is, um, has as part of it is everybody in society has been affected to a certain degree um, via coronavirus. And whether it's just the fact that we can't travel or we can't go out or we can't attend work, um, we're still being affected. So this is not something which is happening only to one town or one city or one state or even one country. Um, this is something that's happening globally. And I think that that also allows us to make a more um, society-wide or at least community-wide um, reaction to it because there's no one in society that can say, I don't know what that was or that didn't affect me or my families to some extent. We, right. all, have a, we all have a bit of a, a stake in um, how we react to this. Right.
going back to your um, to the conversation where we talked about uh, building communities and uh, having students feel safe. I think another trend emerging from this uh, crisis is the importance of the parents mm. in in the students' uh, education. Now that might seem that um, they they weren't involved enough, but I certainly have spoken more with my students' parents <laughs> in the past eight weeks than I have in the past eight years. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and how maybe these remote learning setups can bring in parents closer to the conversation? Yeah, we've we've seen great examples about where there has been more parent-teacher um, interactions online um, than there were previously, and whether it's um, you know some of the specialized IEP meetings that take place, um, or whether it's just the um, standard weekly or um, frequent interactions with parents, um, or even some of the highlighting of some of the let's say non-academic um, activities that have been going on around the school, whether it's a virtual choir or whether it's a um, a um, spirit week or something. It's been it's been really interesting seeing that there have been uh, parents who have been more engaged. What what I think is also important around this, and again, it sort of harks back to the, the last statement, is you've had parents um, very often who have maybe not understood exactly what um, education is like in the year 2020. Um, you know, many parents um, will revert back to their own school days to get an understanding or an appreciation of what school was like. But school in the majority of the country has moved on um, a fair amount. And so I think this has given parents a, a bit more empathy um, with teachers, mm -hmm. not only in um, how they um, interact with the students um, and sometimes classes of 30, 35 students um, at the same time, but also what the students are able to do um, as they learn as well. So I think what I think what will be really interesting when we go back in the fall will be to see, um, I think we may be seeing some different conversations take place during the teacher-parent um, uh, sessions and the teacher-parent uh, meetings that we have. I think there will be a lot more um, empathy um, mm -hmm. for what teachers um, have to deal with. And I think we've probably garnered, um, not that they weren't supporters before, but I think we'll, um, we will have garnered another level of support from parents and families um, as a result of this as well. I agree. I mean, so that's, um, you're sounding very glass half full, which I'm always looking for <laughs> every day. So we've, even got if, be, we've got to be hopeful. Yeah. And even if we have to stand six feet apart, we can actually maybe be closer together when it comes to, uh, having those sort of conversations, uh, and developing new communities and making them stronger. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, Sean, thank you so much for your time. I think this was a great conversation. Uh, I feel inspired uh, and, again, hopeful. And um, with the listeners here, if you want more information about Sean's work and the work of ASCD, you can go up to their website, uh, ASCD.org. And any other tips there, Sean? 
No, but if you wanted to get some more information about Whole Child, you can go to ASCD.org slash Whole Child, um, and that will give you some outlines of the, the work we're doing there as well. Great. Well, thanks, and uh, thanks to the listeners for uh, tuning in. Until next time, this is Kevin Hogan with Remote Possibilities.